Well, I am uh, honored that you've taken some time to join us. We're in a series called Servant Jesus. We're looking at the king who took the seat of a servant so that those of us who were low could be raised high. In order for Jesus to raise us high, he came low. And we're celebrating and trying to prioritize a life of servitude to Jesus. Now, I'm running a risk here. And the risk is that the majority of you, more than likely, are not very interested in the subject of being more servant-minded. Most of us woke up today thinking about how we look, how we feel, what we want to do, where we want to go, how we want to spend our day. And most of us, that's, that's common nature. That's the way that I operate most days. It's normal for me to think, what's best for me? What do I like? Where do I want to be? And a servant's path is one that starts not by asking the question of me, but God, what do you want? Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? What would you have me prioritize? What would you have me give my attention to? What would you have me give my time to today? And if we're not careful, we can miss the fact that the normal Christian life is a servant's life. Uh, The one we follow was a servant. For the last two weeks, I've tried to inspire you by looking at two texts about our servant king that hopefully led you to look at a life that's perhaps different than the life that you have lived up to this point. Mark chapter 10, two of his disciples are arguing about what's great. Who's the greatest? Who gets to sit where in your kingdom? And Jesus says that if you want to be the greatest in my kingdom, you must be servant of all. And he goes so far as to say in Mark 10 verse 45, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life up as a ransom for many. So if you want to be great this year on biblical terms, then you should look at the path of the servant this year because it's usually in the path of going low to serve the least that we find a life that's filled with meaning and joy and honor to the God that we profess to follow. And so if we want to become great, what we're trying to do is get you to a point of great service. Last week we looked at John chapter 13. It's the last night that Jesus would be on earth before he would go to the cross and give his life as the substitutionary atonement for our sins on the cross. And as we look at that story, they took Passover in an upper room where Jesus recuses himself from the table, goes and puts on the towel of a servant. The least of all servants in the house were those that washed the feet of the guest. And Jesus goes and washes the disciples' feet. In Mark of that example, he says, you now do as I have done. If I have done this to you, you do it now to each other. You serve each other. Essentially, to be a Christian means that you are a neighborhood muck cleaner. You're there to clean the muck out of the neighborhood with the light of the gospel, the glory of God's goodness, and his uh, coming return that will change everything forever. So, here's my concern. Here's my concern. One is that most of you have little to no interest of being a servant of God this year, which is a bigger concern than, oh, we're not going to get to do this. It's, It's that you would, in that statement, if you even acknowledge it in the slightest, be acknowledging the fact that you do not love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, which is the chief end and aim of man, that we would love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what you've been created to do. He gave you his image so that you would image him. You and your first father, Adam's image, image sin. Jesus comes as the greater Adam so that you can be redeemed from sin, so that now you can image what you haven't imaged, and that's the glory of God throughout the ends of the earth instead of the glory of yourself which is what a lot of your social media simply speaks to and of. You have been made to image God. How do we do that effectively? Well, there's the second part of the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the byproduct of a person that is consumed with that being their mission is that they love their neighbor as themselves. And for some of you, you love yourself a lot. That's a whole lot of love that you've got to give. 
Amen? Amen. So the idea is that we love God to the point that that brings us to an overflowing love for our neighbor. Now, my hope is that you have been slightly to dramatically inspired to this path of servanthood over the last two weeks. But my concern is that inspiration does not lead to transformation. And there are a lot of you that get inspired to do a lot of things on social media and on other TV shows and other things that you watch and do, but nothing changes in your life. And I'm not okay with that. I don't want to be the same. I want Jesus to transform my life. I, don't, I want to look nothing like the Christian that I am today a year from now because of the work of Christ that's been going on in me. And so if that's the ambition and goal, we've got to move from inspiration to application because it's only through application by the Spirit of God that we can get to the place of transformation where we become more like God, which is what his intention is of this foolishness called preaching that we're doing for this next, you know, 20 to 45 minutes, depending on how many times you amen and help me move along through the sermon. A lot of you said your first amen ever in church just then. So we're going to move into application. Where are we going to get the application from? What does it look like to be a servant in the path of the servant king? Well, Isaiah chapter 42 gives us a prophecy about the coming servant king. We're going to spend three weeks looking at the example of what the servant king was prophesied to come and do. And then we're going to connect it to the New Testament where Jesus came and did exactly what the prophet Isaiah said that he was going to do. So if you have your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 42. Open up to Isaiah 42 with me. If not, it'll be on the screen. We've got extra Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, it's hard to read a Bible you don't have. So we would love for you to have one if you don't have one. And you can leave here with a Bible for free. Like for real. We, we actually will give you that. No strings attached. A lot of people, they're like, it's free if you give us your social security number, your three kids social security number. Like, like it's for real free and you, ain't gotta, you don't have to give blood. You don't have to, uh, you don't have to sign up for like an 87-week prayer program where we're going to do squats and pray. Like, like you ain't got to do that. That may be a good idea. Some of y'all can maybe use some squats with prayer. But my, my point is we got free Bibles in the foyer, and they're made available for you. Isaiah 42, what's going on? I don't want you just to jump into chapter 42. This is a story that's already going on without knowing the, what's happened just before we've gotten here. What Isaiah chapter 41 has gotten into detail of is the inability for Israel to be faithful to God. Uh, consistently, over and over again, Israel keeps turning to idols. They keep looking for satisfaction or what they believe God's not given them or won't give them in the form of something that's created, and they believe that it can actually deliver what that God's not giving them to them. I'll give you an example. In Isaiah 41, verse 21, he says, Present the case for your idols, says the Lord. Let them show what they can do, says the king of Israel. Let them try to tell us what happened long ago so that we may consider the evidence or let them tell us of, the of what the future holds so that we can know what's going to happen. Yes, tell us what will occur in the days ahead. Then we will know that you are God's, little g. In fact, do anything, good or bad. Do something that will amaze and frighten us. But no, you are less than nothing. You can do nothing at all. Those who choose you pollute themselves. See, this is the problem. Uh, Romans would go so far as to say that all of creation has looked at what has been created, and instead of worshiping the creator with it, they took it and made it a god, and they worshiped it. Or better yet, they used it to build their platform to worship themselves, which is what many of us are after. 
We're more into likes and follows than service of a platform that actually seats on it the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So we're building our own platform and our own life. But the problem is, is your idols can't deliver you. They can't save you. They can't help you. They can't fulfill you. They can't give you peace. They can't give you love. They can't give you an identity that's built on a rock. There's only one rock. His name is Jesus. And you can't find apart from Jesus what only Jesus can give you. You will continue to be Mick, last name Jagger, finding no satisfaction in any platitude or achievement that you can achieve in the world if you do not have relationship with Jesus Christ. It is only in relationship with Christ that you and I can find what Christ can only give, and that is deliverance, that is power, that is strength, that is purpose. So the, the problem is Israel was created to be a people set apart. Israel was created to serve God so that through their service of God, God would work through them and bless them so that they would be a blessing to the nations. But they have consistently not served God and instead served an idol. Maybe you can relate more than you want to say amen to. Isaiah 42 picks up, though, with God saying there's someone greater coming. There's someone different from you that's going to come into the story, and it's good news that he's coming into the story because we've gotten a good sample size on what you can do apart from the greater servant that you need. And so Isaiah 42 verse 1 says this, Look at my servants. I would submit to you that all of the Christian life, that the gospel begins with us getting our eyes off of the world and off of ourselves and onto Christ. And the invitation is you've looked at idols, you've looked at yourselves, you've looked at your life, you've looked at the problems of the world and you've tried to reason for how you can make them better. But the beginning of the solutions you're looking for may be in a different spot. Maybe the problem you're having in your life, essentially what Isaiah is saying, is that you are looking at the wrong thing. You're looking at your dream instead of looking at your God. You're looking at your goals instead of looking at your God. You're looking at your habits and your past instead of looking at your God. You're looking into a future that's not filled with God because you're not looking at God in your present. So look at God. This is the invitation. Look. Look. Now, uh, I understand that you've been taught that it's not polite to stare. And this is one of the most common practices that I was taught at a young age. We would go places. Usually it was at Walmart. There would be weird people at that Walmart. And my mom would have me in the buggy. And I would stare. I never will forget, there was a night that we were at one of those Japanese steakhouses on Jekyll Island. Anybody ever been to Jekyll Island? It's hotter than hell on Jekyll Island in July, which is why it was such a good deal for us to go there. So my parents booked the vacation, and we were going to go out to a fancy dinner. We didn't do fancy dinners back then. We would get to eat out like once every week or two, and it was usually at El Jalisco, and everybody got Speedy Gonzalez's, and they used to be $3.95 with a sweet tea. Can I get an amen? Anybody remember $3.95 Speedy? Not $5.95 Speedy, $3.95 Speedy with the tea. It was free. That's how we would go out to eat. And so we were at this fancy restaurant, and there was this guy, and he was not having a good year, a good life, a good decade. Something wasn't right. He was probably a Cowboys fan. That was for my friend. But my point, my point, my point, try and reel it back in. My point was he is about six beers deep before we even got to the salads with the ginger on top. And so my sister, who was really young at the time, who's been raised in a Christian household that's been taught, we don't get to the point of drunkenness, we don't do any of that, is staring at this man uncomfortably. And because you're kind of around the table. So my mom's like, Lindsay, stop staring. And so Lindsay says out loud, is he trying to get drunk? (laughs) To which my father wanted to crawl under the table. 
And what's amazing is out of her mouth came the words from the, ne- from the waiter came by the next time, do you want another beer? And he said, yeah, give me an old duels, which if you don't know, that's the non-alcoholic kind uh, because he felt conviction from the five-year-old that was staring. My, my point, here's my point. My point is that it's not appropriate to stare in public, but it is absolutely biblical to stare at God. In fact, it is impossible to be Christian without us looking to God, staring at God, moment by moment and minute by minute. In fact, the book of Hebrews calls us to that. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says this. Uh, Hebrews 12, 2 says, We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross. What do we need to see when we look at Jesus? We need to see how to suffer. What do we see when we see Jesus? A suffering servant who was suffering not because he was wrong, but because he was righteous, because he was doing what God the Father had sent him on this earth to do. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. So what's the invitation? The invitation is that you and I would look at Jesus. Let me be clear. When it comes to Jesus, it is okay to stare. It's good to stare. It's needed to stare. Stare at his cross, because when you stare at his cross, you realize it's paid. Stare at his tomb, because when you see it, it reminds you that it's empty and you're forgiven. Stare at his words, because in them you will find life. Stare at his life, because in his life you find what the Christian life looks like. Stare at Jesus. This is an interesting concept. What the nation of Israel was doing is they were trying to fix their problems instead of staring at God. And what God's solution, his prescription for them was in the beginning was not to fix it, but to look. And some of you are so busy fixing your life, so busy fixing your marriage, so busy fixing everything that's broke or everything that's inconvenient or everything that's not the way that you want it to be, that you have lost sight of the call to just stop and look. Behold, behold, the one who is blameless, Behold, the one who has made a way. Behold, the one who is able. Look to him. Look to Jesus. Why? Look at verse 1. What does it say? Look at my servant whom I strengthen. He is my chosen one who pleases me. Look, because when you look to Jesus, you find the one who has strength. And a byproduct of looking at what is strong is you endure with strength in what you have been overcome by before you look there. Look at him. Look at him. Why? Because he is chosen. And whenever you're in Christ, you're reminded of the unconditional love that God has for you. And when your eyes are fixed on him, you no longer are grading yourself on your performance, but you're now receiving the grace of his achieved work on the cross. And now you know that it's not on the basis of what you do or what you don't do that makes you love, but it's on the basis of the fact that you are in Christ Jesus, that he has chosen to love you unconditionally. You are loved. Look to him because you're loved. Don't look to another man or another woman or another relationship for love. Look to him. Until you know you're loved by him, you've got no business bringing other jacked up people into your jacked up story. Don't look to other people for strength. Don't look to a diet for strength. Don't look to the gym for strength. Look to him for strength. Until you know that you hold his strength, don't worry about your physical strength. Physical strength's here today and gone tomorrow. It's momentary. It has a benefit. It's going to add some more years to your life for you to be in a nursing home and miserable and angry at people. It's great. I'm still eating my fried chicken sandwich. That's what I'm doing. This is my, this is my point. Don't, don't start by looking for strength in other places. Look to the one who is strong. Don't start looking to be received in other places. Look to the one who has been received and makes us uh, receivable before God. Look, look to him First, why? Because when we look to him, 
then we're enabled by the Spirit of God to please Him. To live a life that matters. To live, to live a life that gives glory to God the Father. You see, when you look to Christ, you find strength. When you look to Christ, you're reminded that you have a new identity and you've been chosen. When you look to Christ, you receive the joy of knowing that we are now in Christ and God the Father is pleased with us. Let me just go ahead and tell you. If you're a follower of Jesus, no matter what happened last week, you don't have to come to church for Jesus to be happy with you. You don't have to come to church for him to accept you or love you or think good thoughts about you. Like God is fully satisfied with Christ Jesus in you. And, and it's not going away because last week you stubbed your toe and said a word and spent money where you shouldn't have spent it and didn't like read your Bible 10 times for 10 hours. And look, he wants your time. He wants your attention, but it's not out of obligation. It's an invitation to a better way of living. It's an opportunity for you to be with someone that, that is great, that fills you and satisfies you. Like no one has to tell you when you're dating, hey, you should go on a date. We have to say that to married people. No, you choose to do that. You want to do that. You want to be, why? Because you love them. It's, and, and that's what happens when you get around God. It, it, it's life-giving. It's transformative. It's a joy, not a burden that we have to follow. So, so look at the text. The text says, look to my servant. But here's the problem. If all we say to you is look to Jesus, all you'll find is discouragement. It doesn't make sense, but let me explain. If all I say to you is look to Christ's example and try harder, then I've already demonstrated to you why many of you quit church five times before you came here. You come to church, you hear about the righteous way, which isn't your way, you then try it for a while within your strength, which then doesn't sustain, so then you're tired and you're burdened and you're bitter and you're angry because it seems to be working for them, but it's not working for you. So then you quit, and you go home, and you, you think it's the pastor, or it must be the song, or they're not praying right, or they're not doing something right. And, and what, you, you, what you don't know is that you've been deceived into living by your power instead of living by what God intended to give you to live the Christian life, and that was his spirit. You see, if all I do is I, is I say, look to Jesus, he's perfect, and then try and be like that, I've set you up to always miss the mark for the rest of your life. But if Jesus lived a life that was unique and different so that we as followers of God would know how to live a life that's unique and different once we receive salvation, then maybe there's something to looking at him that the uh, prophet Isaiah is actually inviting us to. And that's what we see in the text. Look to him because I'm giving him my strength. Look to him because I'm pleased with him. But then look at what it goes on to say in verse 1. Uh, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, it says, I have put my spirit, I have put my spirit upon him. I have put my spirit upon him. You see, Jesus being the son of God could have done it all by himself. He needed no help. He needed no power. He needed no extra hand. But instead, he chooses to live on earth dependent on the Holy Spirit. Why? Jesus being God did not need help. Why did he live dependent on the power of the spirit? Because for some of you, he knew you were going to come to Christ. You were going to pray a prayer at 7, 8, 9, 20, 40. Some of you are stubborn, 90 years of age. I baptized a guy that was 97 once. He's like, better late than never. And everyone's like, we thought you were saved. He's like, no, I was holding out. I was like, get in here. <laughs> this, this is my point. God, in his knowledge, knew that you were going to get saved, and then you were going to have a life to live that you had no ability to live. 
And so you were going to need someone you could look to who could show you what the normal Christian life would look like. And what we find when we look to Jesus is we find one who was led by the Spirit in every step of the life that he lived. Let me be clear. He was always the Son of God. He never achieved the identity of the Son of God while he was on earth. He was the Son of God that came to earth. That's why we read all the way back in the book of Genesis where it says, let us make them male and female. Let us make them in our image. Jesus was the plan from the beginning and was there in the beginning before we even knew a beginning was coming. So the entire time, Jesus was with the Father and the Spirit, and they were at work together on earth creating. Jesus steps into time and into history and into humanity's story that had turned down the path of sin and away from the path of righteousness and holiness and godliness, and he walks in our path. But he walks in our path in the flesh, filled with the Spirit, so that when we became saved later in life, we would know what the Christian life would look like by the Spirit. Now, I understand that for a lot of you, this is a foreign concept. You've not heard much about this because you went to a Baptist church, and the only time anyone talked about the Spirit is because a woman got a little loose in the hips, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, the Lord's moving. And then the only other construct you have for the work of the Holy Spirit is late-night Christian TV with a woman with pink-dyed hair on that TV, promising that the Spirit's told her that if you sow seed into her ministry, that you're going to get some unique, weird, voodoo blessing in your life that's going to make everything that's broke fixed in your life, and you, you bought into it. And so in your mind, the only thing the Spirit does is apparently make a Baptist woman's hips swivel, a woman's hair get dyed pink, and then her need money that you have to send so that you can get a blessing. And then maybe from time to time, someone runs around the auditorium and yells, get the devil out. Not that that's happened here ever. My, my point. My point is that there is a, a mystery. Sometimes I say things that I shouldn't say. But I lack the filter to filter them out. All I'm trying to say is, you don't need to be afraid of the Holy Spirit. You don't need to be afraid of the Holy Spirit. And just because someone a little different than you uh, said the Holy Spirit was in them, know that there's lots of spirits, and we're to test the spirits by the Word of God. And that sometimes people's expression in the actual Spirit of God may be foreign to you because you've not experienced it, but nonetheless, the Holy Spirit is there. Here's what I'm trying to get at. Here's what I'm trying to get at. If you want to be a servant like Christ, you need to know that Christ-like service requires spirit-filled dependence. If you're going this year to be a greater servant for the kingdom of God, it will require dependency on the spirit of God. You cannot do the work of God without the spirit of God. And the way that we create religion, the way that we create frustration, the way that we create boxes and compartmentalization in our life is by trying to do the work of God without the power of God, which then builds up walls in which God doesn't work in in different areas of our life. Now let me point this out to you in the New Testament. The spirit of God will be upon my servant. That will empower him to the service that he does. Where do we see this happen? Well, if you go forward to the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 3, there's this little event where Jesus has a baptism. His baptism was probably a little bit different from yours. He walks up to a guy named John, his cousin, who was the baptizer, who was preparing the way for Jesus. He said he's not worthy to tie, untie the sandal on his shoes to even wash his feet. And Jesus shows up where he's baptizing, and this happens. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? Just a quick free thing here. A couple times in the New Testament, Peter and John seem to be the ones that do it. They try to talk Jesus out of something that he's decided he's going to do. They think that in their mind they've got some counsel that Jesus doesn't see. They don't understand why God would do things the way that he's going to do them. Maybe you can relate. Some of you are like, God, I'll do anything you want me to do. And then God clearly gives you what he wants you to do, and you're like, but that. 
I'll do anything but that. I'll go anywhere but to them. It's just not those people and not that place and not that person and not that group. But I'll do anything, God, but that. And, and usually, I've actually had people come to my office and they're like, I'm in that but that stage. Like, I know God kind of, I, 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 and they usually try and guys like, I'm just not sure if God would really want me to like, you know, lay down my life and sacrifice in some way so that we could benefit our neighbor in that way. And I, ah, it sounds pretty biblical to me. It sounds like God may want you to do it. And they'll be like, I just, I'll do anything but that. I, I'm just not going to forgive them because it's just messy. And I'm like, well, ah, it sounds like that's what God wants you to do. And then you get mad when you don't do what God asks you to do, and then you're the same a decade later. And nothing's changing, and nothing's growing, because God's still waiting on you in that but that moment where you wouldn't do it. Some of you, that's all you needed to hear. Just go and do that, okay? Like, you've been arguing and debating it. You've got prayer teams and councils around it. You've done throwing out fleeces. You've been asking for, you know, like, God, if you really want this to happen, let a deer around that turn be there. And like, and like you saw a deer, and like, you're like, you still, ah, maybe not that. So you... I'm not saying that's how you should be doing it. I'm just saying you've got a lot of clarity that you should be doing that and you still aren't doing it. So maybe you should bring your butt that back to where you're starting with God. Anyway, too close for some of y'all. Also note this. Obedience doesn't always make sense on the front end. Most of the time, Christian obedience requires faith because it doesn't make sense. Many of us are living in a state of light, and this concerns me, that, that, that says to God, why now? Why would you ask me now to do that? It made sense then. I don't know what your then is, where in your mind it was the timing of God to do whatever he was going to do in your life. But then you're like, but, but not now. God, it made sense when I was younger that you would call me to change my career and change my life and sell my possessions and follow you. It made sense then. But why now? We're established. We're in a good spot. Why would we uproot? Why, why now? Uh, it makes sense that you would have asked me when I was in that spiritual state, but now I'm broken and keenly aware of my weaknesses. Why now would you ask me to do something so great when I'm so weak? This is the way God works. You see, he's always on time. I, I dated a girl in a singing group called Joyful Sound. I like to call them Joyful Noise. And they toured all over the, uh, every Southern Baptist church. Beaver Dam Baptist, Back Creek Baptist, Sugar Tip Baptist Church on the creek. Uh, everywhere you can imagine, I went and heard the same get up from them because uh, I like that girl a lot. Um, I married her. Uh, she, she, and they would sing this song. They would all, and I, I loved it because they get to go. They get a little bad accostal, and they'd be, "He's an on-time guy, yes he is." And they start looking at each other, and they come into harmony. He's an on-time guy, yes he is. And they start swaying. He may not come when you want him, but it'll be there. They, they didn't do that. They didn't do that. But my, my point is that the purpose of God and being obedient to God is always on time. I don't. I'm wrong. They kick, they kick you out of North Greenville if you did that. Like you, you're not allowed to dance if you go there, I don't think. They allow dancing now. They've progressed. They watch Footloose and Kevin Bacon. They've been Kevin Bacon. Where are we at? Let's get back to the Bible. The obedience doesn't make sense on the front end, but Jesus said it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. There's a prophecy in the Old Testament that spoke of this. So John agreed to baptize him. Look at what happens. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on 
him. Now, this is unique in the scripture. If you go back in the Old Testament, when Saul became king, we're told the spirit of God was put on Saul. But Saul was a disobedient king, so the spirit left Saul, and a tormenting spirit came on Saul. So where did the Holy Spirit go? Well, the Holy Spirit wasn't on everyone. Not everyone could be in the presence of God or enjoy the glory of God. In fact, there were holy places that you could go and be near God's glory, but you couldn't get close. You couldn't inhabit the holiness of God or the Holy Spirit of God at work in you. So his Shekinah, his glory, was around the Ark of the Covenant within the inner room. And once a year, a priest that had gone through a massive cleaning ritual could go in and pour out a sacrifice that was on that Ark of the uh, Ark of the Covenant that reminded them of the commitment that God had made to them, but no one else got to go in. Moses would go in, and in terror, as he would go into the tent of meeting with God, people would stand at the, begin, the, uh, the door of their tents, but no one would go in, and Moses would come out, and sometimes the presence of God would change his complexion to such an extent that it would terrify everybody that was out in the camp. So not everyone had access to the Holy Spirit. That's an assumed privilege that most of you have forgotten is a high privilege that came at a high cost from the very blood of Jesus so that you could have it. So you got to know that the Spirit of God was put on people and pulled off people. So it was on Saul, then it was pulled off Saul, and it was put on David, who was the runt king, who was the least of his sons, uh, of his father's house, Jesse. and And he would go and serve Saul and play the harp, and the Spirit of God would work through that and give peace to Saul's spirit, which was in torment. And so we see this coming and going, but this is the first time in the Scripture where the Spirit comes and stays. Why? Because Jesus is about to live and walk out the perfect walking out of the Christian life, and he's going to do it by the power of the Spirit. His identity as the Son is the same, but he's dependent on the Spirit in every act and in every miracle and in every step he took. Why? Because he's going to send the Spirit later in John 17 to you and call you now to walk by the Spirit. And this is so good. This is such a gift that he's given you. So the Spirit comes and descends on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly beloved Son, who brings me great joy. Okay. Didn't happen at my baptism. May have happened at yours. That, that'd be weird. But my point is, there had not been a single stir in Nazareth. There had not been a single... Like, I turned towards Jesus until this point. In fact, J. Oswald Sanders says, Until the Spirit descended on him at his baptism, he created no stir in Nazareth. But when the Spirit was on him, as well, then world-shaking world events began to happen. J. Oswald Sanders, in his book on spiritual discipleship, uh, said that. It's a great book. You should check it out sometime. He was led by the Spirit. That's what we read in the next chapter. If you go from Matthew 3 to Matthew 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led by the into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. How do you overcome temptation? Here's the prescription of the Bible. By the Spirit. The Spirit gives you a way out. The flesh tells you there's no way out. The flesh says you've got to finish this. You've got to do this. You're too deep in to get out now. The Spirit says, no, there's always a way out. This is what we have. Jesus lived a spirit-filled life. He goes so far in John 12 to say that his words are not his words, that he's speaking the Father's words. And how is he doing it? By the Spirit. See, many of us look to the life of Jesus and we're like, oh, that's an example of like something we need to be close to. But the idea is that the Spirit will fill us so that we could represent Jesus. And he went so far as to say even greater things than these will be the things that you do with Christ in you. Colossians says Christ in you is the hope of glory. So he's put his spirit within you. Here's why I keep drilling this point home. Jesus was on earth to redeem humanity. Therefore, while on earth, he set aside his ability, not his identity, but his ability 
so that he could live by the Holy Spirit. This is the greatest grace on the other side of salvation that many of you do not know. Jesus has died for you, but he has also sent the Holy Spirit to empower you. You see, many of you know the grace of Calvary, where Jesus died for us, but many do not know the grace of Pentecost, where he empowered us. I heard a guy say that it's like, in Ephesians, they talk about the armor of God, that we're to put on the full armor of God, and that most American Christians are only wearing the helmet of salvation, and they're streaking. Just running around, saved! What do you, what do, you do with that? I, not what you do, okay? That's what we do. We don't do what you do. What's, it doesn't work. This is, this is why we're to boast in our weaknesses. Why? Because His power is perfected in our weaknesses. It's this beauty of this glory that we have, that Jesus has not only saved us, but he's empowered us to live the Christian life that we couldn't live. You know, this is perhaps why many of us give up and quit. <laughs> God's desire for you is that you would be empowered, dependent, marked by a spirit. But many of us are simply marked by our flesh. How do you do that? Well, the spirit's given to any believer in Jesus Christ. I know that we like to say that, you know, if you speak in tongues, you have the Spirit, but if you don't, you don't. Well, the truth is there's lots of spiritual gifts. The root word being Spirit from the Holy Spirit means that God's uniquely gifted you for Christian service in a way that would edify. That's a big word that said, that means build up, encourage the body of Christ. It's not so that you can become a spiritual superstar. It's so that you can become an empowered servant. My gift of teaching and preaching is so that I can be a servant to God, and in my service to God, I edify and build you up to be servants of God. Ephesians goes so far to say that's the whole point of it. Those who have been given the gifts of teaching and preaching have been given it so that they can build up and equip others for the works of ministry. All of this is about service, but that service is impossible without the Spirit. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you've received the Spirit. Now, how do you stay activated in Spirit-filled living? This is a constant struggle throughout the Bible. You're not to live by the flesh, but you're to live by the... And there's a way that we can test our lives right now. Galatians goes so far as to lay out the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. If it's in the Spirit, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, mercy, and self-control. I may have left one out. That was from the don't. But... If it's in the flesh, what, what do we find? Anger, malice, dissension, division. It's pretty obvious, right? Like if you're constantly being consumed in battles of anger, you're probably living in the flesh. Like if, you, if it's a constant process of like, and, and you make excuses for it, and we, I, 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 let's just call it what it is. You're in the flesh. What's the prescription? Luke 9, 23. If anyone will come after me, he must deny himself daily, take up his cross, and follow me. The problem is that you're off the cross. And your life, now in Christ, starts with you getting on the cross. Your flesh, your abilities are of no help to the things of God, to the purpose of God, to the work of God. So, what's this call? Take up your cross. Why? Because when you die to yourself, the Spirit of God has full reign to come in and lead and empower you to do what you cannot do. Now, what does the text end in Isaiah 42? Look at, look at it with me, because I think it's a great invitation to us. Isaiah 42, verse 1, it ends with saying, He, with the Spirit upon Him, will bring justice 
to the nations. We love that word. It appears three times in chapter 42. When something's repeating uh, repeatedly in the Bible, you should pay attention to it because God's trying to get a message to you. And when we read justice, we usually think of like punitive legal correctness, meaning like what's legally wrong gets corrected and made right. We think about a courtroom and a court scene, but that's a very narrow view that doesn't encompass the entirety of what the Bible means when we read the word justice. You see, justice also within its definition biblically means that there is a longing inside of all of us for a world that we have yet to realize. A longing for a world where things are right and not wrong. You see, in all of human history, we've never created a society, no matter how good the government is, no matter how wealthy the country is, where everyone can look around and go, yeah, this is good. At times in your life, you've been able to look around and say, yeah, this is right. This is as it should be. But you need to know that there's a neighbor near you that's looking at the world going, man, this is so broke. It's not as it should be. And before long, you'll probably have the shoe on your foot that they're wearing on their foot, which is seeing the injustices and the brokenness and the inability for this world to consistently remain good. Now, the Bible has a reason for why that has happened, and it's got a big biblical word that's tied to it. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we're told that God created and it was good. Good. And he created you and it was what? Very good. Don't you take the very off your good. Right? The word that's in Hebrew for that is the word shalom. It's life as it should be. It's what's on your spirit and soul even though you may not know God. You want life to be as it should should be. You want there to be lasting peace, not a fight for peace. You want there to be lasting love, not a transactional love. You want there to be the ability for everyone to have enough and for there not to be hunger and starvation and death that comes early. You want life as it should be, right? Amen? And this causes questions and peril with God because how can you be good God and life be as it is right now? What you need to know is up until Genesis 3, everything is perfectly aligned under the lordship and leadership of the Father. But in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve step outside of the lordship and leadership of the Father into sin. As a result, what we have is a misaligned world. It's not shalom, it's broken shalom. Life isn't as it should be, it's operating against the way that it should be. And what you need to know about my God is he's not okay with that. And what he is saying, and he's speaking of justice, is that he has come to establish his reign and rule to bring everything back into alignment as it should be. The shalom that's lost will not be shalom that's lost forever. It will be restored. How is it going to ultimately be restored? At his second coming. When he comes back, he will make right what is wrong. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and it will be perfectly aligned in the lordship and leadership of God, and we will enjoy him forever. That's what he is doing. What does that give us hope for? How does it give us hope for today? Well, let me just be clear. The blood's already been spilled, the way's already been made, and through Jesus, while we can't speak for everyone else's house on the block, you can speak for your house, and you can allow your life to now come under alignment to the leadership and lordship of Jesus, so that you can be filled with the Spirit and put on mission for His glory and His name and His renown. And God's desire on this side of eternity is that you would not be misaligned in broken shalom, but that you would experience on this side of glory a unique shalom that speaks to the greater one that's to come, where you enjoy God day by day, 
giving thanksgiving in your heart, giving praise and glory to him. It's like I'm speaking something out of the Psalms. Day by day, breaking bread. Oh, that's Acts in the early church. Breaking bread and giving thanks for the glory of God. What's happening? The shalom of God is coming over the people of God as they align under his lordship and leadership and are empowered by his spirit. What begins to happen in the early Acts church? Miracles begin to take place. Revival begins to break out. Missionaries get sent. Lives get changed. I want you to be a part of that story. But it comes with you accepting your role as a servant of his kingdom. And the only way that you can serve is by being empowered by his spirit as a part of his kingdom people. So, our prayer team is going to come up. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you about what it means to be a follower of God. But I'd love for you to come and re-surrender where you've kept parts of, your God from, uh, parts of your life from God's lordship and leadership in your life, where you've compartmentalized a faith, where you've excused a sin instead of bringing it before God, I would love to invite you to re-surrender, asking God to come in and through his spirit deliver you from what's been done, deliver you from what's been said, deliver you from your mistakes, your faults, and your flaws, d- deliver you and empower you to walk in a new way as his people with him being your God. Prayer team, you come. Let's stand to our feet and you respond as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.